Shack. Buzz up. This is Luke. I'm here with the premier podcast in fashion with my fashion advice expert, Tex McQuilkin. Tex, what are you wearing today? Lululemon. A Lululemon and pullover. Quarter throwback zip with a power athlete throwback field, shield tee, field strong, oh, shield field tea. strong shield tee, absolutely Wranglers. stunning. And who Wranglers did who Vans. did your jeans? Wranglers. And the shoes are Van. Wow, absolutely stunning people. It is Fashion Week at Power Athlete hey, HQ. Looks, looks basically wearing the same thing. Yeah, uh, that, except the Lululemon because that'll have rollerblades. You know what I mean? That's a wink, text. I'm looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> power Athlete it. Nation. Just kidding. This is the Power Athlete Weather Show. Today is currently 70 degrees. It is a beautiful day oh, in Austin, man. Texas, which yeah. is why we are here to give you another episode of the premier podcast in strength and, and conditioning. Fa- uh, conditioning. Who cares? It's only fashion, people. Um, tonight, if you are one of those people who downloads immediately, we, are, we, are, we have launched our Power Athlete Symposium. You missed out, people. Mm-hmm. You missed out. We are having so much fun right now, rubbing elbows with the who's who of Power Athlete Nation. Actually, there is a chance that you are listening right now. What is going on is the live. Wait, not no. so silent auction. Yeah, right. This is the not so silent auction time. Yeah, time, time. I'm, 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 and Callie's going to be here, so we can control whether this gets posted or not. We control the podcast text we could just unplug your computer you control the mail that's it you control, control information. information so ladies and gentlemen it's a shame that you missed out hopefully next year 2019 power athlete symposium second first or second week in december just Are mark we your calendars drop what the grand prize was or the what's in john's pockets oh my gosh yes or should we save that um that's a great question text because the premier auction item in strength and conditioning Ing. Ing, is the what is in John's pockets. Mm-hmm. Now, let's just, I'll give you a hint. It is a custom-made item, mm-hmm. hand-tailored by power athlete individuals that is one of a kind and far, far exceeds, I would say, 10 times, the value 10 times is 10 times is worth... Let me try this again, people. The item's true market value exceeds a 10x multiplier of what we are going to sell it for at silent auction, right? Yeah. Meaning, let's say the silent auction price is $100. This is a $1,000 item easily, right? Yeah, but the math, not the actual 1,000. Yeah, it might be 20 times. It's crazy. Listen, people, you're... It's it is crazy. So keep your eye on social yeah, let, media. Let's just say speed is king. Yeah, power. It, just watch Instagram because we're gonna have tons of media pushing out over the weekend. And uh, this year, our speakers have volunteered and are cool with us. We're gonna be pushing out all of the presentations on YouTube. So do, dial into YouTube for that content. But enough about the symposium that you clearly aren't at, or maybe you are. That's weird. Oh, what if? Good thing we didn't mention it because what if somebody listened to it? and was at the silent auction, and they listened to before the symposium. Then they're not following Mark Efron's steps. Of- <laughs> <laughs> they would have missed, they missed Tate's Talk to Me Johnny, they missed Crookston's leadership, and they missed Kara Miller and Adam Nelson. They're idiots. Yeah. Because Adam Campbell. What if, Go or, back to the auction, What Adam. if there's power athlete inceptioning where they're, list, they're at the symposium listening to the talks, but also listening to... 
that dude, the podcast. Oh, they're like those old men at baseball games exactly that are watching like that. the game and listening to the game. Yes. Dad. So listeners, in case you haven't noticed, John Wellborn, featured guest, is not here. It's just me and Tex today, and we are absolutely stoked to bring on Mark Efron. So this dude is an author who... Uh, Tex, how do we link with Mark? Through Melissa Schilling's people. Great episode. Them. Oh, yeah. So if you want to look back, Melissa Schilling, she was awesome. Uh, but I guess her book people connected, connected me with Mark. They shot me over his book, and I had the time over the holidays to read through it. And it's a different world than I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. So I picked up a lot of information that's high quality, and we were able to connect and you know really put this book on display whether you're a gym owner or the gym goer that hits a nine to five mm-hmm. for your career. Yeah, man. Mark's a sharp dude. He's been doing this for a while. He speaks really simply. He's a Yale guy. Is he? Yale? Is that what you said? Yeah. It's like a Harvard of wherever Yale is. Wow. So he's switched on. He is switched on, dude. But what I think people enjoy this because for me, it was all cliff notes. Like it was just to the point, gave me the answer. And then it, it is things you could take away. We like to say there's at least one thing you should be able to take away from the show. There is a full workflow from this show that you could take away immediately to improve your throughput and bandwidth as, like Tech said, an athlete, a coach, or a professional. So strap yourselves in, people. Another episode of Power Athlete Radio coming your way. Uh, to start, Mark, let our listeners know who you are, where you came from, and how you got here. Sure. Uh, Mark Efron, what do I do? I have a consulting firm. We're about 10 folks around the world, and we spend our time helping big companies to build better leaders. So our clients are the Pepsis, the Starbucks of the world. And um, I'll give you the the short-ish version of my story. Navy brat growing up, so crisscrossed around the the country for many, many years, ended up in Seattle, University of Washington grad, um, down in Southern California for about five years, and came out to the East Coast to go to business school, and I'd never been with a big company, and uh, was with a bunch of people who are very sophisticated around that, and uh, they said, well, what do you want to do in life? And I said, well, I read this book many years ago called In Search of Excellence, and that sounded cool. How do you do that stuff? And they said, well, that's human resources work. I hmm. said, I don't know what that is. And they said, just you know, go, go take these classes. And uh, kind of came out with this view of, hey, there's a lot of great insights around how people to be more successful at work. Why aren't people doing this? That seems really straightforward. Why don't we just apply what we know? And for the past 25 years, that's what I've been doing is trying to connect people with there's incredible science that tells you exactly how to be a winner. Why don't we just make it really easy to apply that so that more people can be successful? So that's the, the short-ish version, uh, and we can go into more detail if uh, if you want. Yeah, let's, I mean, that's that's it, baby. So let me ask you a question that's been looming. So uh, we are right in the, the, the sprint end of setting up for our end-of-the-year symposium. It's a three-day event out here in Austin, Texas. We have 11 speakers who are going to be doing all sorts of great stuff, and in, invariably, we talk about leadership and culture, Right. And, uh, you know, you said winners, like why we're going to create winners, but don't there have to be losers on this planet? Like, aren't people just destined to be losers? Oh, I'm a why big did you look at me when you said that <laughs> <laughs> present company excluded, but, uh, for, for the other folks who might not be as high performers as those three of us. Yeah. I'm a big fan of differentiation. And to be honest, that's where a lot of companies go wrong is, Hey, we want to be nice to everybody. Everybody mm-hmm. gets 
trophy. And our perspective is it's a lot nicer to be honest with people and say, you know what, Mark, you're really good at A and B. If you want to get better at C, here's what you're going to need to do because there are already people who are better at C than you are. To me, that's a really nice thing to do as opposed to lying to you and say, no, you're good. Just keep doing what you're doing. Right. And I think that's something that folks don't understand is there's this archetype or like fantastic vision of leadership, right? And part about uh, part of the reality of this, and I'll let you speak on it because you were the expert, but my, my inkling is it's not what everyone thinks it is. It's not a glorious thing. And part of leadership and part of success is the, the dark parts that we try to avoid, but it's, you know, and this comes into failure, failure and learning from failure. But I just feel like people are like, look at being a leader, being in a leadership position as like be, getting an MVP trophy. And it, it it's not right. It's not just that award. It's it's much more than that. Yeah, I think there are probably two, two ways to look at that. One is you're right. A lot of people have this art, typical leadership model. Oh, they're the nice guy and they're inspirational and we all love working for them. Um, let's use everybody's favorite example, Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. Steve Jobs was a son of a bitch, just mm-hmm. flat out, really nasty individual to work for. But guess what? He did a lot of really cool things. So are you willing to tolerate his negative qualities as a trade-off for the brilliance that he brought to this world? Mm-hmm. Personally, I'm fine with that. A couple of people cried because of him. I'm okay with that because of the trade-off. Now, most of us don't have those gifts that we can say, well, I'm going to act like a jerk to bring such great stuff to the world. But it goes to the point of there are multiple ways to lead. And the science is very clear. There's not just one way to lead. There's one way that's more typical that allows most people to be good at work. But there are a few other great examples as well. So that's one side of it is there's different ways to be successful. But as I write about in the book, we also know that we all have what we call derailers. And derailers are just parts of your personality that are kind of the rough spots that are going to come out. We all have them. Some of us have more than others that are absolutely guaranteed to mess up your career if you don't pay attention to them. And so even the most brilliant leaders, in fact, sometimes the most brilliant leaders have even more of mm-hmm. the, the need to deal with parts of their personality that are likely to get in the way of them being high performers. So you mentioned the book. So I want to take the time to introduce it. So eight steps to high performance. And this is a book that I picked up and I got some, some good notes for it. And you already mentioned 11 derailers. So this is step two: behave to perform. So let's get into those 11 derailers. I guess I read this as I was thinking of individuals, but you said it could be within yourself as well, personality and character traits. So I guess I was thinking of other people that I work with that represent Why are you looking at me? I'm just kidding. (laughs) But um, so let's get into these 11 personality characteristics or derailers that could affect you personally or a team. Sure. So let's think of derailers like this. Uh, Think of derailers like your hair looked when you woke up this morning. So the way your hair looked when you woke up this morning is your natural hair. It's always going to be your natural hair. You can't do a darn thing. It's going to look that way every single morning. But over your life, you probably recognized either you didn't or other people didn't want to look at your natural hair. They wanted you to slick it back, comb it, do something with it that's a little bit different. So you consciously styled your hair so that it's more acceptable to other people. Think of derailers the same way. Derailers are simply a natural part of your personality. Maybe you are naturally a really gregarious, outgoing person. 
hey, that's great until that gets turned up too high and you're the one dominating every conversation. You're not letting others have airtime to talk. You're sucking up all the great ideas. But over time, you've learned, hey, that's really not acceptable behavior in meetings. I'm going to sit back a bit. I'm going to make sure the conversation flows better. You're kind of slicking back that hair. It's still your natural hair underneath, but you realize I need to do something about that so that I appear more acceptable in interactions with others. Now, the good news is we can really quantify the different ways that you're going to derail in three big buckets. There's kind of three ways that any of us may derail. One is you might engage in behaviors that put space between you and others, meaning let's say I'm, uh, I'm an introvert and I really like working alone. I don't really like a lot of people around me. Well, that's fine, except for if I'm doing a lot of work alone, people might know, not know what I'm working on. I might surprise them by doing things that I haven't kept them informed. I might not be building good relationships with them because I'm not interacting with them on a regular basis. That puts distance between me and them. And so one way that we derail is we engage in ways to kind of push other people away from us. So one way we derail, we put gaps in between us. One way, another way that we derail is we put ourselves into other people's spaces. So, you know, let's say I'm that gregarious guy I mentioned before, and I'm sucking up air in, in every single meeting, and I'm the one always dominating the conversation. Well, I'm stepping into your space when I'm doing that because, hey, you might want to say something in that meeting as well. You might have a good idea you'd like to talk about, but I'm not allowing that to happen. So we call those moving against behavior. So one way you might derail is you're always kind of moving against other people. And the third and final way are what we call moving towards behaviors. And moving towards, think of those as kind of kiss-up behaviors. Those are behaviors where you're really trying to make everybody else happy. Let's make your boss happy. Let's make everybody else around you happy. And the challenge there is, let's say you're always managing up to your boss really well, and your team comes to you one day and says, hey, I know that the boss wants X, but we want to do Y. Would you mind going to the boss and telling her that? And you might say, oh, you know, I don't really want to disturb that relationship. And, you know, and you're seen as someone who's not going to be supportive of your team. So there are three big buckets of ways that we can derail. We can move away from people by the way that we behave. We can move against people by putting ourselves into other people's space. And we can kind of try and ingratiate ourselves with some people, which by definition means we're not playing as well with others. And the good news is once you identify these, you can correct them. Kind of like it's your natural hair versus your style hair. Once I know I'm an introvert, I'm not likely to be as uh, kind of connecting with other people as others. I can say, hey, I know my natural tendency is to have lunch alone. I should probably ask somebody else if they want to go out and grab a burger instead, because that might not be comfortable to me, but that's a high performance behavior. So it's all correctable. That's the great thing. And that's what we talk about in the book is this is all stuff you can own. I, mean, I never want to hear, oh, that's just who I am. I can't change. That's a load. We can all be whoever we want to be if we want to exert enough uh, effort to do that. I mean, I guess that it's hard, though. Right. And at the crux of it, you, the old Callie Hinsman, you got to want it. <laughs> and some people some people are fine not being performers. But yeah. at the end of the day, understand it also affects your team, you know, and that's we we circle back in the I found uh listening to some of our older podcasts. We always relate back, us personally and McQuilkin and I, to like team sports in the sense that at a very young age, you learn how that leadership hat can shift in the matter of seconds depending on your performance. 
or someone else's. So you may have a high performer on the field at any given time. And then all of a sudden you have this toxic, I guess toxic's not contagious, contagious leadership, right? And it just elevates everybody up. But, uh, you know, to take that approach in a office environment, which I've lived in, where there can be a lot of people who are not high performers and they're fine. I call them turkeys. You know, Mark, I just like they're turkeys that sit there and they collect the paycheck. And then you're trying to uh, create that contagious energy to be a high performer. It's hard. It's fucking hard to fake it day in and day out. But eventually go. No, you're mentioned one of Mark's steps here. Fake it. Number six. Mm-hmm. But it's hard. Oh, what? I, I well, I think it's a key point, though. I mean, let's we all know the guy who sits on the bench press at the gym and, and checks his phone. Great. There's somebody else who's doing five extra reps. Right. I on the phone could do the five extra reps. He's making a choice not to be a high performer. Mm-hmm. That's one of the great things is most people don't want to be high performers. It's not that difficult to put in the extra effort and to think about how do I actually elevate myself above them? And what, what I outlined in the book is there's scientifically proven ways to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not, Oh, hope and try. And maybe you'll get lucky. This is do this and you will be a higher performer. It's, it's classic. Hey, you do three more reps. You're going to be stronger than the guy who's checking the phone. Mm-hmm. So with fake it, Uh, I guess going back to the team environment, you had those loud guys, right? They were loud in the locker room, loud on the sideline, loud when you're winning. But when the going gets tough, it's inauthentic leadership. So what's the balance between fake it till you make it and authenticity? Sure. So I think half the challenge in in the corporate world where I spend my time is there's been a lot of noise recently on being on an authentic leader. And there's a lot of good parts of that, but a lot of folks have interpreted that as I'm going to just be who I am. Authentic is the natural me. And we just talked about derailers. That's your natural hair. Hey, some of your natural hair might be great, but some of it might be kind of scary and people don't want to see it. And so what fake it is all about is saying there are times when you need to be that chameleon. You need to walk into, into a locker room. You need to walk into a team meeting saying, who do I need to be in this situation right now? How do I need to show up to be the most effective person possible? Not how do I show everyone the wonderful human being that I am? That's the wrong mindset. Mm -hmm. The right mindset is what does this group need from me right now? And the science is clear. People who can do that are far more successful for some pretty obvious reasons. And the, the reason that I entitled the chapter fake it, not stretch your capabilities or flex a little is people who are really good at this literally can put on an actor's face and say, you know what, I'm not either naturally comfortable or naturally skilled doing what I'm about to do. I'm just going to pretend I'm the person who's really great at it. And I'm going to put on that face and I'm going to kind of act like that individual. And I do that a lot when I'm on stage giving speeches. Um, There's a, a, a mentor of mine, an idol, who's one of the great executive coaches in the world. His name is Marshall Goldsmith wrote a great book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Mm-hmm. If you have a chance, pick that one up. And Marshall is the most um, happy, entertaining, joyful person I've ever met in my life. Uh, that is not me. But when I go up on stage, I, I just channel Marshall. I'm like, hey, everybody, great to see you. That's not me. That's the fake me. But that's what that audience needs at that moment. 
So I'm not concerned with what would Mark Efron do in front of the stage. I'm concerned with what does this audience need from me right now to have a fantastic next 60 minutes. So faking it is about saying, I'm going to commit to engaging in the behaviors that are going to make me the highest performing individuals, whether I feel those are the right behaviors, core behaviors, natural behaviors to me, because I want to be a higher performer. But in that scenario of walking into a boardroom or a conference room with your team and your peers and faking it, right? And being the person you need to be. I feel like there's a lot of work that has to be done to understand who your team is and who your peers are, right? And understanding what they need to hear because you, it shouldn't be a guess. I would imagine that there's, there's legwork to dig in to be the person your people need to be, right? Yeah. You have to do the legwork. Yeah, you have you have to know your audience. Um, and, and in most cases, you're not going to walk into a room having no idea why you're in the room or who else is there. Mm-hmm. So in, in most cases, you're going to know either, hey, I need to get this team um, excited. <clears throat> excuse me, excited about the the big match coming up. I need to uh, I need to let this team know that even though they've won eight games in a row, the ninth game could be where they'll lose. I mean, you you generally know the group that you're facing, so you can adapt that message. But to your point, yeah, you need to know your audience, and you need to understand what's going to get them to the outcome that you're looking for. And that's just a fundamentally different approach than I'm going to walk in being me, and let's see how that goes. Mm-hmm. I want to jump back to step number one. Set big goals. And a big piece that I took away from this was fewer goals. So set big goals, but set fewer goals, right? We run into a lot of people that want a lot of things with their ambitious. It's beautiful. But where do they derail themselves when they try to spread themselves too thin? Yeah, the, the science is super clear around this. And I find this with my, uh, my corporate clients. Most of us are really ambitious. Hey, I'm going to get 10 things done during the year. Cool. <clears throat> science says you'll probably get parts of 10 things done. Um, And if that makes you happy, great. But most of us, if we really focused our effort on doing an unbelievably great job at two or three things are going to get a lot farther, whether it's in sports or life or anywhere else, because what you're doing is you are acing those few things. I'm going to throw the ball faster than anyone else. I'm going to hit more free throws than anybody else. That's a lot more effective than saying, I'm going to be a good general basketball player. No, I'm going to be brilliant at a few elements of this game. Uh, So science would say, one, when we focus, we're likely to focus on the few most important things. Because oftentimes when we set a long list of goals, there's some important and there's a lot of trivial. And in the corporate world, the challenge is we want to get rewarded for everything we do. So we list every single goal. And then we say, hey, I got all, you know, I got 19 out of 20 done, even if you missed the one that was most important. Uh, half the time we list a lot of goals because we want credit for stuff we do as opposed to accomplishments that we've actually made. So a few goals is going to focus you on uh, on the few that matter, but also we can then stretch those goals. And this is where the science is unbelievably clear. We respond as human beings to an additional unit of challenge with an additional unit of effort. So if tech says, Mark, jump a foot, I'll give you a dollar. I'll try and jump a foot. If you say jump two feet, I'll give you two dollars. I'm gonna jump two feet, three feet, three dollars. I'm gonna keep trying to respond to your challenge until either I'm physically exhausted, I can't literally can't do it anymore, or the reward doesn't meet the challenge. So if I say, hey, text, four feet, four dollars, and you say, nah, just three dollars still, not gonna do it. But we respond really well as human beings to additional challenge. So if you have a few goals, you can maximize that stretch. 
and I write in the uh, in the uh, first chapter of the book about this concept called theoretical maximum performance, which I, I stole from a, a weightlifting book that I read, which talks nice. about you know if you align your if you have perfect form, perfect nutrition, perfect mindset, if everything is in perfect concert, what's the theoretical maximum amount of weight you would be able to lift? We'll apply that same concept to your performance at work. If you had perfect goals set, uh, you had the perfect mindset around them, what's the max, theoretical maximum performance you could deliver? And when you have just a few big goals, you can think about, hey, what's my theoretical maximum performance on this? How great could I be? If you have 10 goals, there's no way in heck you're going to get that done. You're going to kill yourself. But if you have two goals or three goals, you can think about, hey, what does brilliant look like on this goal? And you walk through a how to set goals that I'd never come across before. Typically, it's to set smart goals and a lot of just generic stuff. But you put a line promise, increase, and frame. So if you could talk us, talk to us how to set great goals and what each of those concepts means. Sure. So a line is, especially in the corporate world, are you doing things that the company really cares about? Now, that sounds really obvious. Well, why wouldn't you be doing things the company cares about? Well, you might have a lot of interesting things you want to work on that don't happen to align with it. You're, and your boss isn't paying enough attention to it. And so it's very easy to stay very busy uh, without doing things that are necessarily important to what the organization needs. So step one is let's make sure you're working closely with your boss to say, hey, boss, if I could do three things this year that are going to help you and the level above you achieve their goals, what would the three things be that I could do? You're, if you want to be a high performer, keeping your boss happy is really high on the list of things to do. And if you say, hey, boss, I want to make sure you are wildly successful. Uh, what are you focused on this year? And how can I help you uh, get those goals done? That may sound like sucking up. Go back to chapter six. Um, and But it's, it's definitely going to work. So alignment, step one, promise. I like calling goals promises. Uh, and that's not intended to be a cute word trick. That's really about how do we increase the seriousness uh, with which we talk about goals? Because well, of goals, yeah, I have some goals. I'll try and get those goals done. And sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But how many times do you make a promise and not fulfill that promise? I would much rather have somebody in a corporate environment come to me and say, Mark, here are the three big promises I'm going to make you about what I will achieve next year. Because at that point, I'm going to believe they're serious about achieving that. And it's probably going to feel like a more meaningful outcome they're delivering. So align promise, the increased piece we talked about, that's around stretch. And then framing them, I like framing them according to what we call the simple methodology, simple S-I-M, specific, important, measurable. Just that easy. Specific, is it detailed enough that I know what the heck you're trying to do? I, important, does this matter to anybody? Is it going to make a big impact in the organization? And am measurable, just what it sounds like. How will I know if you've actually done this or not? So specific, important, measurable uh, is the way to frame those goals up. Again, I, I wrote goal setting chapter or the goal setting chapter first because the science would suggest it's the singular most important thing you can do to be a higher performer. Most of us dramatically underachieve because you don't set goals in the right way. So you oh, check check. You keep referencing the science. What like what, how does that science manifest itself? Is it survey? Is it what, what is this research? Great question. Um, when I talk about science, I mean the hardcore academic science, which is um, peer-reviewed academic journals that dry, crunchy stuff that most 
folks never get to, but it's kind of the belt and suspenders level of confidence science. So this is not, oh, there was a study in some guy's basement and he found out that oh, if you, you drink this, the better things will happen to you. No, this is the, the top scientist, the top behavioral scientists, the top schools doing experiments over 20, 30, 40 years, proving things like if you have bigger goals, you'll get bigger results. So, um, and I'm a big, um, a big fan of discerning between research and science. There's a lot of interesting research, especially in the sports field, because I try and stay up on sports as well. And a lot of it is, well, you know, we looked at eight people and they did this and it kind of looked like that. That's not the level of science I, I care about. What I care about is, you know, we've looked at these people doing these things over 50 years and we can conclusively say that if you do X, you get Y. So I'm a big fan of saying, don't just pay attention to people who say I did a big survey or I've got a great idea or I worked in four companies who did this. Start, stick with that core science that says there's a belt and suspenders level of confidence that if you do X, you're going to get Y. I think this is a good time. I would do want to come back to goals, but I think this is a good time to talk about step eight. Avoid distractions in particular. Sharpen your skepticism. And I don't know if Luke can get his skepticism any sharper. Mm. It's pretty good. So talk I'm about the, <laughs> the, the importance there. And you call out grit, power poses, and some other things. So I, I'd love to get into your purpose for including this in the book. Yeah. One of the reasons I wrote the book is because I knew that there was so much information or so much noise out there about how to be a higher performer. And some of that information was legit and a lot of it wasn't. And it also wasn't all in one place where people could say, hey, well, what's all the things with all the stuff that matters? And half the challenge for folks who want to be high performers is that there is a lot of bad information out there. But that bad information might be by a Harvard professor who has a 10 million hit uh, TED talk. So how is the average Joe or Joe supposed to figure out, well, what's true and what's not true? So in chapter eight, what I talk about is what are some popular leadership or management fads that just don't have any science to back them up? Because my view is if you're going to spend time trying to be a higher performer, I want the most efficient path to getting there. And if I'm doing something that's not proven to be true, I am wasting my time. And I don't like doing that. And so uh, chapter eight talks about things like, you know, the 10,000 hours of practice rule. It's got a lot of traction in Malcolm uh, Gladwell's book probably 10 years ago where he said, you know, if you practice for 10,000 hours, you can be an expert in anything. And the original author of the study he quoted came back and quickly said, no, that's not true. Yeah. Anders, Anders Ericsson. So we're lining him up for the show. Oh, oh yeah. Yep. So something well, to look forward to, but right. I'm right in line with, with your, what you're saying now. Yeah. And a lot of other scientists came out uh, against that article saying, actually the folks who show up being, either artistic prodigies or sports prodigies, they were showing promise at ages two and three, a long time before they had 10,000 hours of practice. So, you know, if you say natural skill plus 10,000 hours of practice could lead you to be a brilliant athlete, absolutely true. If it's an average Jill or Joe doing something for 10,000 hours and you're going to be good as everybody, uh, better than anybody else, you know, fundamentally not going to happen. Well, it could. Right, ten thousand hours is a lot of a lot of fucking hours. Yeah. So, it, but it won't guarantee. Like, just punching the time card doesn't guarantee it, right? I, I want to be a running back for the next five years. I'm going to try really, really hard to be a running back. Mm -hmm. That's ten thousand hours. You want to place a bet with me on how likely I am to make the Oilers? 
Well, well uh, you know, well, maybe that don't exist. Yeah, so what, it's like, impossible. <laughs> well, what if it's the you know like uh, uh, pee wee football? Like you, you well, know, as a as okay, a thirty six year old man, I go back to pee wee football, just start fucking people up. That's what I'm talking about. But I, I mean, I guess what I'm getting at, absolutely, it doesn't ensure your, and it doesn't ensure your success at the highest levels. But even getting back to this, and what I'm kind of noodling on with becoming a high performer, I think folks may even hear that and think of it as binary, right? Versus what what very similar to what we talked about with athleticism. Like there are God-given athletes who just can do fantastic things in sports and in open space, whether it's like, think even think parkour, gymnastics, things like that. And then there's just donkeys who like are stiffs, you know, but that doesn't mean we can't push them along that spectrum in the positive direction. Right. So being a high, being a high performer may not yield CEO level capacity, but certainly promotable capacity in putting you in a better place than you are today, right? Absolutely. And that's the entire point of eight steps to high performance is there's a lot of our performance that we do control. As I say in the opening chapter, about half is due to genetics and our intelligence and personality and things we can change, but fully half we can. Mm. What we rely on is if we just have 10,000 hours of practice, somehow we're going to end up being brilliant at what we're doing. To your point, we're going to be better than other folks, but if we think we're going to be that, you know, star running back, right, may not happen. And you would hope you were better than you were when you started, or that would be very disappointing. <laughs> it would be a sad outcome. <laughs> I'm now stupider than I was ten thousand hours ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's that's the thing with uh, even within our space, Mark. You know, there's these methods and philosophies, and uh, just you know people's interpretation of them, it's hard because a lot of it may get misinterpreted and, and people are expecting the extreme results. And if they don't get it, all of a sudden it didn't fucking work. Like, nope, didn't work. But there's, without considering variables and starting point and end point, you know what I mean? Um, or giving it enough time to even understand how long it takes to manifest. And I'm thinking like perhaps weight loss, right? Somebody comes into our our world saying, Hey, or weight gain. Even we have guys who are like, I want to put on weight. I want to get jacked. Oh, I tried this for fucking for five weeks. Hard gainer. I haven't gained weight. Uh, okay. So the, it doesn't work. No, that's, you know, it didn't, you didn't do what it took to work. Like it works people. It works for people, but, um, and then there's also whatever fits your personal, like psychological or sociological framework to allow it to be practical. Right. So, uh, with that said, are there different as individuals come into this this workflow? Are there different starting points that require consideration in how to follow your your guide here? Uh, give me a little more color on that. Meaning, well, is it is it a universal one size fits all, or you know, does somebody come in and uh, you know, let's say they are not in a leadership position now and are striving, or they've been assigned their newly assigned leader? Um, does that, am I cl- providing clarity for you? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, short answer would be eight steps apply, whether it is day one at work or you're 40 years in. So let's right. start with the basics. It's day one at work. The first thing you should probably be focusing on is what are the few big goals I have to achieve? Second thing is how do I behave around here to make sure that people know that I'm, I'm competent, capable, and well-liked? So you can walk through the book, whether it's day one or you're about to retire, the good news is it's the science. The science is going to apply because you're a human being. 
Uh, now, you might apply it a little bit differently, day mm-hmm. one versus 40 years in, but the fundamental truth behind things like setting great goals or avoiding your derailers or connecting well with others are always going to apply. You know, you said something, uh, be likable, or maybe you didn't say that, but that heard, I that's did. what I heard. Uh, yeah. Um, that has got to be like the number one, if you could be a high performer and have people like you, you got to be like, that's what I, I try to explain to people. If you know someone, you like them and you trust them, they're going to be a valuable resource for you, which means maybe you should follow those three fucking three prongs as yeah, you yeah. try to progress Absolutely. in your profession, right? Yeah. The old, I mean, the phrase that rings in my mind every day is likable expert. When they talk about consultants who are successful, you're a likable expert. Just do those two things well. Know something about something and don't be a total jerk. You're likely to do okay and turn the dial up on each of those. You're going to do even better. Mm-hmm. And likable doesn't mean love. It doesn't mean you're a sweetheart. You're the nicest guy in the world, but likable. You can be a bit of a jerk and still be likable. You can have a pretty broad personality and still be likable. Um, but yeah, if you're fundamentally unlikable, you're pretty much dead in the water. Sorry, Tex. <laughs> so we have a conversation after this. In, Good luck. In step three, I, I feel you dive into this and you discuss experiences, behaviors, and skills and how these interact in functional experiences, management experience, and your focus there is faster growth. So this is a big self-awareness step, which essentially is crucial, right? We can set big goals and we can... Um, we can identify some derailers, step two, but three is a big growth. So talk about growing faster. Yeah, so the good news is that we know how people can grow faster at work, and it really is all about the experiences that you have. And I break that into two big buckets. One is functional experiences, meaning you have to be good at something. Be good at marketing, be good at finance, whatever it is, but be really, really good at something you're going to get better faster the more experiences you have in that area. And think experiences, not jobs, because that's where a lot of people default to is I only have one job. You can get 10 different experiences on that job. Um, so let's say I'm, uh, I'm in marketing and um, I'm going to get better if I know every element of that. I know something about advertising. I know something about the creative side of it. I know something about the promotion side. Great. In the organization that you're in, how do you get a little bit of each of those experiences as quickly as possible so that you can get kind of one rep in? A lot of this is the more reps you get in, in those various areas, the more you're building your skill sets. And the challenge for a lot of us, we don't know kind of which reps to get. And the easiest way to find out is to go to people who are very successful in your field. If you want to be a great marketer, find the best marketer you know. Go to Marketing Magazine and see who's writing articles and send them a note saying, hey, I'm trying to be just like you. What are the five big experiences you think I should have to become more successful? And the, the science is super clear. Experiences will grow as faster than, than anything else that we can do. And it's just a question of which are the right experiences to have. And so one is getting those deep functional experiences, become really, really good at something. The other is we call them kind of the broadening experiences. It's showing that you can demonstrate that deep functional knowledge in a couple of different situations. So maybe you're in a company that's having tough times. Great. Let's show that you're a great marketer there. Uh, maybe you're, maybe we move you to a different part of the country you're unfamiliar with. Great. Prove you're a great marketer there. Just kind of take those great core skills and let's see in how many different um, scenarios you can demonstrate them. 
It's kind of like saying, hey, you're a great general athlete. Let's throw you into volleyball. Let's see how you do there. Hey, let's see how you do in archery. Let's see how you do in the taekwondo. You know, we know you have some good core skills. Let's see in how many different ways you can prove to us you can apply those skills to get to a good outcome. So functional depth, leadership breadth is the way that we talk about in the book. Get really good at something, and then prove you can do that something in a lot of different scenarios. That parallels beautifully with how we teach movement. So we want to teach our, our athletes, teach our coaches how to teach movement versus movements, right? Instead of just teaching them how to bench press or just how to squat, we want to teach them how to horizontal press so they're prepared for any horizontal press that they'll face on the football field. Um, same with the squat, the jump, the landing, and how that carries over to you know sprinting, bounding, jumping, lateral movement. So I can see the parallel Perfect. there between... Love. Love it. Yeah, that, that's exactly it is. Look, there's some core things you need to be good at. Um, let's let's give you as many reps at those core things as possible so that you can then apply them in lots of situations. Love that analogy. I'm going to steal that. Music. Go, go for it. Awesome. And I want to jump back to goals. So big thing you talk about is the two plus two coaching. And I believe this is something that you you a concept you came up with. Can you explain that to our listeners and the importance of feedback, feed forward and growth? Sure. Um, the science is super clear that most of us actually respond pretty well to what I'll call redirection. I don't want to call it feedback because that has a pretty negative connotation, but kind of redirection. Hey, you did X. You might want to try doing Y instead. So most of us respond well to advice going forward. You know, hey, I saw you, you planted your foot this way. Next time you might want to plant your foot that way. What people don't respond to is you planted your foot wrong. Oh, okay, great. They respond to kind of good advice going forward. Let's apply that same concept to coaching people at work. Most folks don't want to hear their past performance analyzed or critiqued. They want to understand how they can be better. What's a simple way to do that? Because most folks get a little bit scared when you talk about coaching. Two plus two methodology simply says, most of the people in your organization are gonna have some goals. And so once a quarter, once every three months, sit down with them for 15 minutes. You can do more if you want, but 15 minutes and simply offer two observations of their performance against those goals. So if you have goal one, hey, here's how you're doing against goal one. Goal two, hey, you're doing well, not well. So two observations against the goals and then two, what I would call feed forward suggestions for what they can do differently to be even better. So it might be, um, hey, text on that one marketing project. Um, I, I love the output, but some of the folks on the team didn't feel quite as connected in the next man or the next marketing project. Make sure you're having maybe a few extra team meetings. that Everyone feels plugged in and, and maybe one other behavioral suggestion. So two quick observations against goals, two quick feed forward suggestions. What can you do differently going forward to be better? Incredibly fast, incredibly easy. It's, it's the lowest possible bar you can ask a manager to go over. If a manager cannot have that conversation with her or his team, you've got a much larger challenge. And the challenge in corporate America is that most folks aren't particularly good at coaching. And what we found is a lot of big companies have adapted this, AT&T and others, because it's so incredibly easy to use. And what it basically says is I can now hold you, Ms. Manager, Mr. Manager, accountable for being a better coach because I've made this so unbelievably easy uh, that you kind of have to do it. But what if the mistake is like is significant and there is no redirection and feed forward? It's you're a fucking dipshit. <laughs> what is the 
soft version to say there, you know, and, and, I, conversation. You know, and I, I know I'm being, I'm being intentionally extreme on that in the sense that, um, even if you are that manager who has the ability to redirect and provide this, uh, the constructive feedback or transformational advice, right. And where there's a lesson learned from the mistake, odds are that's not going to be the, the, the philosophy laterally along the organization. And you, you, how do you prepare your, your crew, your team for the event of somebody coming at you hard, right. And not being, not shutting down in the moment because it happened like that, that happens. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. This is not about trying to be um, the, the happy manager and only giving people positive feedback. Uh, this is more on a regular basis. How right. you in touch with people, but also I read about in the book, I'm a huge fan of, of hundred percent transparency mm-hmm. and hundred percent transparency is, Hey, in that last game, you sucked. Let's talk about why you suck and how you're not going to suck again, but let's mm-hmm. dig into this because I never want to see you suck that way ever again. I think that's a wonderful, productive, nice conversation to have. Mm -hmm. Now, you should still supplement that with, hey, that game wasn't about your overall goals. Your overall goals are above the game we just went through. So I can solve a conversation with you about how are you progressing to those goals. Mm -hmm. But in the moment, in that last game, I'm going to give you very honest feedback. So I think the two can coincide really well. Um, Goals should probably be one step above the immediacy or the kind of the immediate event that we're looking at. But, you know, obviously if people are doing a great job, yeah, give them a pat on the back. If they're doing a crappy job, let them know they're, they're not along where they need to be. And I'm just thinking like, and again, I'm probably oversimplifying it and I'm, I'm creating a scenario that doesn't exist. So there's my disclaimer, Mark. No, I, I can think of a scenario that this is real. Like high performing, right? I understand. And there, there, you create a catalyst in an environment for high performers and a high performing um, synergy among uh, a team and leaders and followers. Right. But sometimes shit gets hairy and it, you know, in, in sports specifically, somebody makes a, a catastrophic mistake and emotion, emotion breaks down that filter and it turns hairy. And there are, I've been on teams where people will crawl up their own asshole and they disappear because, They've never been exposed to that. They don't know how to deal with it. And I'm mm-hmm. not saying like, or maybe I am saying, is there an intentional titration or exposure, uh, an inoculation to that type of feedback? Is that Let's planned? Go, is that yeah. scripted? Is that a thing? Go back to what we were just talking about with experiences. Mm-hmm. The more experiences you've had where things get hairy, the better you deal with them. Right. So I'd rather give you an experience in Little League or in Pee Wee where things get hairy right. than in college. So, you know, if you've had, if you've had 10 reps on things getting hairy, you're going to say, look, I know it sucks. I've been here before. Let's figure out how we get from here to there. Right. And uh, yeah, I, I totally, and again, I, I guess not advocating for listeners ne- or maybe I am, I don't know what I'm talking about, but reality is people are going to be an asshole to you and you're still going to have to be a high performer. Yeah. Right. And it's, uh, and that, I, I would suspect whether you're in athletics, whether you're in the corporate gig, and even let's say in the familial unit, right? Shit is going to go wrong, and uh, you got to be able to to either channel it or have a system for managing it and maintaining that high performance. Whether that means uh, being like you're saying, Mark, faking it, like in a family event, if something catastrophic happens, like do your wife and kids really need to see you fucking screaming, like a a, a goddamn Sally? 
Because there's a spider in the corner? No, you're going to go pick up that fucking spider and eat it because you're a bad motherfucker. Right, Tex? Well, yeah, and fake it, Mark, you talk about taking the emotion. <laughs> you take the emotion he's bringing it out. back there. <laughs> yeah, he t- so he does touch on emotion during the fake it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, um, you know, I'm having a hard time articulating again because I think I'm thinking a very specific event and not, not uh, uh, trying to just, I guess, pick apart the system, uh, right? But outside of... I'm just thinking uh, I, I can't speak for your refer, uh, experience at the corporate level, but in t- learning to speak the seminars for John mm-hmm. and right, not being John, but presenting the information, he would attack us. Mm-hmm. He would try to find all these different angles and corners and really put us in a hard place when we're presenting in case we ever faced that. But that was, mm-hmm. you know the stress of the well-born versus the stress of the masses. Yeah. And the corporate gig, I was, and maybe it's different now. So Mark, I had spent six years in um, a large company, about 4,000 employees globally. And uh, there was still some like old school dudes. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, you know, there was a very hot button topic and it like, it would turn into like, I'm like, this is like goddamn locker room. I love this. You know, like, (laughs) why can't this, why can't everybody act like this? You know, but uh, I, I, I was, I didn't have coaches like that that would necessarily break us down. I had very transformational coaches from what I recall growing up in my team environments, unlike what Tex had, but I, I, I thrived in that, that type of feedback, but I also had commensurate like, or uh, equal, positive management, I guess, versus that like hard, very hard, challenging management. And I think that it just kind of, I being able to work within both of those spheres allowed me to thrive within when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And that also goes to core personality. So Mm -hmm. you and I might be wired similarly. There's a, there's an element of personality called interpersonal sensitivity, which is just what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Um, I am extraordinarily low on interpersonal sensitivity, which means I'm really direct. If you think I'm being a jerk in a meeting, I really want you to tell me I'm being a jerk in a meeting because then I'll, I'll respond. I don't want you talking to other people afterwards. So if we're two interpersonally insensitive people talking to each other, we're going to get along great. But if Tex is a a hundred on interpersonal sensitivity and we say, hey, Tex, and, and, you know, in that last show, you were like stumbling all over the place. You weren't prepared and we don't know. He, his feelings are going to be hurt and he's not, not going to understand why are we being so direct with him. Mm-hmm. So part of it is some of us are wired to engage in that type of discussion and enjoy it more than others are. And we can all flex a little bit, learn a little bit, but at the end of the day, somebody who is fundamentally high on interpersonal sensitivity is never going to enjoy being told directly. So that's, you know, you're never going to have every office be able to operate that way, but you're going to have a mix of people. And then is there, a, is there a screening process to identify those individuals, or is that like a trial and error thing? I mean, there, there's plenty of tests you can you can get to that, but also you don't necessarily want everybody sure. being that way. Um, you might want a little bit of a mix because then, yeah, every meeting might be a screaming match. Um, <laughs> Sounds like was, our organization. Yeah, what? yeah I said it. I don't think so. Yeah, I do want to highlight steps four and five. Uh, I guess again, not from a business aspect, but just my thinking back to my internships and the tough times within that. So we had connect with the right people and maximize your fit. So I was mad at during some internships cause I didn't get to coach. I didn't get the opportunities I felt I deserved, but I needed to understand my place. But then a big part of surviving those experiences was connecting with the right people. Now 
freaking five years later, plus years later, we're all in pretty awesome positions and, and still pretty connected. So uh, I just want to highlight those two things. And the fact that they're in this book, they are of importance, Mark. So what was the motivation to getting those in there? So, well, the motivation for anything being in the book was, is it proven to increase individual performance at work? And it's, I'm actually a pretty deep introvert. I hate connecting with people. It's not a natural thing I do at all. Uh, go to chapter six on fake it. I've learned to get better at it. But the, the science is super clear that those who connect better with their peers and their boss, it's not about direct reports, actually, connect better with your peers, connect better with your boss, you're going to be a higher performer and have a better career. And most of us aren't as conscious about assessing the quality of those relationships as we should be. And I have a, a little quick and easy tool in the book where I, um, I show you how to assess the quality and depth of the relationship with your peers. And most of us think, oh, I get along with eight out of the 11 folks I work with. That's fine. No, not if you want to be a high performer. If you want to be a high performer, you better have great relationships with 11 out of those 11 people. And in the book, we, we talk about, hey, assess those relationships. Is that a low, medium, or high? And unless it's a high on every single one of them, in the next two or three weeks, you should be having a cup of coffee or lunch with that person just saying, hey, either, you know, we've actually never gotten to know each other well. I'd love to just kind of find out how you tick and, uh, and learn more about you. Um, or if it's, hey, you know what, we've had some run-ins in the past. Uh, I'd love to make that relationship a little bit better going forward. You know, would you mind if we, you know, grabbed a beer and talked about it? High performers are always working that. It doesn't mean they love everybody. It doesn't mean they want to get along with people, but they understand if I've got eight people working for me and three people working against me, I'm yeah. probably going to get as far. So a lot of it is just recognizing every single person at work contributes to your reputation at work. They can say good things about you or bad things about you. Uh, what would your choice be? So if you want to be a high performer to our conversation earlier, the extra effort to say, you know, those last three guys who I think are each jerks, I'm going to go have lunch with them and they're going to love me by the end of that lunch. Same thing with the boss, the boss relationship. A lot of us think, well, if I'm nice to my boss, I'm being a suck up or a kiss up and I don't want to do that. You know, let's keep in mind that bosses are people too. Bosses like people who like them. Bosses like people who say nice things to them and make them look good in front of others. There's nothing wrong with doing that. There's a lot of space between being a psychophantic suck up and just being a nice guy to your boss. And so the exact same analysis that you'd want to apply to your peers, apply to your boss. What's the strength of my personal relationship with this person? Does he or she really know me? Do I really know them? You know, have I spent two hours in a car with them driving somewhere? Um, have I ever had them over to my house for, for drinks? Do they know my family? I mean, what's the quality and depth of that personal relationship? Because the science is really clear. The deeper that personal relationship, the faster you will move up. In fact, the science even says, even if you're an underperformer, which I don't recommend, but if you have a strong personal relationship, you will still be rated higher than some people who perform better than you do. So that strong personal relationship can actually make up for underperformance. Again, not a long-term strategy, uh, but uh, the science is clear. Relationships matter. All right, Mark, you've convinced me. You know what you're talking about. <laughs> so what I'd like is some feedback on power athletes rules to being a high performer, which are our three pillars. Do what you say you're going to do. Don't be yeah. an asshole and don't steal. Oh, don't do nothing. Oh yeah. Don't do nothing. 
Do what, what you, you say you're going to do. And don't steal. That's, that's the three. That's our three you values. You can be an asshole. Oh, it's yeah, okay. you can be an asshole. Now, I'm, I'm actually okay with eliminating the asshole one. That's cool. But <laughs> were people stealing a lot? Did that rule come up because of a reason or was it just? Uh, yeah, well, so in the, it's an interesting gym, like in the space, the micro gym fitness space, um, in my experience, individuals, it is an environment in which individuals think they can do it better than you. Right. And what you'll see is clients will band together and it's not necessarily like stealing from the cash drawer. Right. Uh, but it would be stealing from like starting a, a coup almost and getting members to band together and open another gym and steal members type deal. Ah, so there's, there's that type of well, mentality. Well, not being an asshole. Right. I don't know what that is. It's a borderline. But and uh, with specifically within our domain is like, you know, there's. Uh, I guess you could have like tricky accounting from contractors that is maybe a little bit dishonest, right? Okay. Uh, and then that would fall in our eyes under maybe under that that thievery aspect. Yeah. But even yeah. if it's not stealing from the company, it's stealing from somebody else. It still is like against that core value of just authenticity, honesty, and uh, just being a fucking good I would, guy. I would throw information in there as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, like Mark, you reference science and you. You give credit where it's due. There's a lot of people in the fitness world that don't. Oh, it was their idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh. And what's funny is what I find, I mean, there are a ton of brilliant people on whose shoulders I sit. Why wouldn't I give them credit for that? Because yeah. I don't look any worse. No one says, oh, Efron's a nobody. He seems to rely on other people's science. They're like, hey, I'm glad he's read their science because I like the way he translates. Yeah. You don't diminish yourself by giving other people credit for the great work they've done. Mm -hmm. So, Mark, let's talk real talk. What's going on there? So, for our listeners who can't see you, Mark's got these enormous biceps just blasting out of his sleeves. And you were talking about reading a weightlifting book earlier. Are you lift weights? You guys lift weights? I occasionally go into the gym. All right. So, what's up? What tell? How did you get into that? Has that just been like a lifelong thing for you? Um, you remember? You know, you're too young, but um, you probably heard of the um of the old comic books where the the guy was on the beach and they kicked sand in his face uh -huh. and so then he went off and you know the jack lalane or whatever that was um it wasn't quite that bad but let's just say i had strong motivation uh to become a, a stronger individual so uh even just starting in college uh there was some guy who said i'm going to the weight room you want to go i'm like what's a weight room um and he said well come on down and i thought hey this is kind of cool and so yeah from age 19 um kind of on and off and and again I'm, I'm not that serious but i'm in the gym probably four days a week you know pushing pushing weights and i do a muay thai training on uh okay. days a week as well and uh what i found is it's one of the few things in life that's controllable i can't control how many clients i have i can't control the economy i can't control much but i can control every rep that i i have and and so my view is in a world where you can't control much uh, one of the few things you can control is getting to the gym and doing your best. So how about that bridging that gap to workplace performance? Well, step number seven, Mark, I'll let you take it. <laughs> yeah. So step seven is around, you know, how do you manage your body to be a higher performer? And here's what disappointed me when I did the scientific research. I knew I would find if I looked hard enough, the key article that said uh, exercise and frequent exercise and intense exercise is the key to high performance at work. And I looked really, really, really hard to find that article and it doesn't exist. 
you know, there's a little bit around, yeah, it, it, it helps if you have a good hard morning exercise, you know, workout, but it's, it's in no way contributes to, to weight performance at work. What does is sleep. And, and the research is just unequivocal, just super strong that sleep matters. And, and it's getting a lot of press these days. So I think a lot of people are getting a lot smarter about it. Um, but for most folks, it's just simply understanding the difference between sleep quality and sleep quantity. And, and recognizing, hey, it's not 10 hours, it's what's the quality, because you could have 10 crappy hours and it's not gonna do you any good. And just being more purposeful about saying, hey, I'm gonna make sure one, that I get enough, and enough might be six hours, great. I'm not saying you need to do eight or 12, but, but what's enough for you? But then also, are you gonna make it purposeful about high quality? Are you going to have it in a, a cold room, dark room, um, no device reading ahead of time. Are you going to do the basics to ensure you have quality night's sleep? Because the science is just becoming clearer and clearer that especially for high performance at work, that underlies everything. Because when you don't have high quality sleep, what it attacks is what's called your executive functioning, which doesn't mean you're an executive, but it's you know creativity and higher order reasoning, and it's the stuff that makes you successful. And so low quality sleep just undercuts kind of the foundation of what's going to make you a high performer at work. And again, you don't need to have 10 hours, um, but you know, figure out the right number of hours for you and be purposeful about your sleep as a tool to hire performers. And I would argue a part of sleep hygiene is like avoiding lethargy, 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 not being lazy and sitting around doing nothing, right? Some go. sort of activity in any capacity, you know, and, and maybe, you know, us, you know, us ladies at the table here decide to, you know, blast arms and fill out those sleeves, but maybe you're into... Pilates, probably not the people listening to us or yoga or something, but doing something right will contribute to, I think, uh, more regular sleep cycle. Now, I guess bridging the gap back, is there any, okay, so the training, the mindset of training, going to the gym for three, four days a week, let's say, uh, and the physiological outcome of that and adaptation may not directly cause a higher performing individual but our higher performing and higher achieving and higher capacity individuals tend to be healthier or follow that type of regimented lifestyle, right? So here's the correlation is there's a part of our personality called conscientiousness. And conscientiousness is kind of what makes some people seem just always dedicated to a task, always getting stuff done. We know people like that. There's, they're always just wired to get things done. And that's going to apply across your life. So if you're at work, you're going to always want to get stuff done. If you're in any activity, hobby or sports, exact same mindset. So there's a correlation, but not necessarily causation. Um, so, yeah, if you're always dedicated and focused, yeah, you're probably going to go into the gym and, and act the exact same way. If you're lazy and sloppy, yeah, it's going to show up at work and it's going to show up you know, in any sporting activity that you're in. So it's less about there's a, a causation there, but there's certainly correlation there. Mm -hmm. This ties into one of my questions I got from one page talent management. So your first book and what are some things that you can do to quickly identify high potential talent? Is this one of those characteristics? Um, three things I would say for high potential talent. First is uh, one of our mantras is potential flows through performance. So potential flows through performance. You cannot have high potential until you are already a high performer. And while that sounds really, really obvious, um, in the corporate world, we hear things all the time like, 
you know, Bob's had a few bad years. We think this will be his big breakout year. That's like saying, this guy's dropped every pass we've thrown to him, but we think next season's going to be his big year. No, he's no. due. That is big. <laughs> <laughs> so part of it is the, the road to high potential flows through high performance. If someone's going to move forward in your, in your organization, whatever organization that is, they are demonstrating outstanding results and behaviors. So results and behaviors today. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, second is they are willing to make, they have the ambition and are willing to make the sacrifices to succeed. And we talked about this a bit earlier. Not everybody wants to sign up, for that, but people who are going to be high potentials want to succeed. They're going to be the ones volunteering for hard work, volunteering for new assignments, staying later, working harder. They're going to consciously say, hey, I'm going to put an extra effort because I want to advance. And they're going to tell people, you know, kind of openly, I want to be better at whatever this activity is. And the third piece, we would say, there are people who you would stake your corporate life on. And normally what that means is you've seen them succeed in enough new situations that if we put them into another new situation, you just know they're going to knock it out of the park. So they've, they've just got something where they figure out new situations really quickly they seem to have the intellectual horsepower that other people don't have. And oftentimes that comes through, they solve problems faster. They connect dots that other people don't connect. You know, they just, they, they seem to always be a bit, a, a kind of a step ahead of others in terms of how fast they're processing information. Um, and um, they're, they have the right behaviors. They're engaging in, in the behaviors that, to our earlier conversation might not mean they're loved by everybody, but they're at least respected and hopefully liked by many people. So when we talk about what differentiates a high potential, if we're looking at any organization, are they a high performer? Have they clearly demonstrated they perform better than 75 to 80% of people sustained over time? Two, are they willing to sacrifice uh, what's necessary to be that higher performer? And three, would you stake your corporate reputation or your corporate life on them? Do they have the the intellectual smarts that you think is going to propel them into any situation successfully, and they always seem to land on their feet. Any situation you throw them into, they just always seem to ace it. Mark, how long have you been doing this? Uh, 25-ish years. So is there, with the with the shift and generational shift and shift with technology and how groups work with, uh, like, telecommuting – has any of this evolved? Are things have things been tapped into obsolescence, or how how is how has time affected the the workflow? Sure. Here's the cool thing about everything that I write about in the book. It's all about people, and people really haven't changed. The stuff around us has changed, but the kind of the core human psychology about how we perform, why we perform, how we get along with others hasn't changed in a long, long time. Now, it might be that we apply that in different ways. So maybe now, if, if you're my boss, Tex, and you set goals for me, you're not going to see me in the office every day to check up on me. So we'll need to find, figure out a way for you to understand am I performing well. But the fact that big goals are going to propel me is still absolutely true. So it's more the application um, of these eight steps might change a little bit, but the fundamental truth underneath it is absolutely rock solid. And that's why when people start quoting things around generations, you should be highly skeptical mm -hmm. because the science suggests there really aren't generations. There are old people and there are younger people and old people behave like old people and young people behave like young people. And they always have. 
And so you can write a lot of books and sell a lot of them saying, oh, these wacky kids these days. Well, they're the same as the wacky kids in the 70s and the 50s and the 20s and the 1860s. Just thinking of the, the NFL right now. So the Rams are what we, we in 10 and 1, 10 and 1 right now. And they got a 32 year old coach, head coach. And then I guess people were comparing him to Greg Williams, who took over for the Browns. And he's like, he's been through it all. Been a head coach, been assistant. He's been through the grind. He's, you know, earned his time. But then this 32 year old head coach just kind of jumps in. And they're talking about the differences in generations. I think it's hilarious. Really, mm-hmm. I know the guy can, thirty-two-year-old, he can connect clearly and get buy-in from the players. And Williams, I think the Browns are doing all right, but I mean, it is a whole different apples and oranges. Yeah, so that's I guess it is apples and oranges. Well, the meritocracy. I don't give a flip how old you are. Mm-hmm. Are you getting stuff done? If you're winning games, you're twenty-five. Cool. Now, if you're winning games, you're sixty-five. Cool. All I care about is, are you winning games? I think that's what gets in the way a lot is if you don't have a pure meritocracy, you worry about stuff like what generation are they from? And I don't care. My goal is in companies make more money. Sports win more games. There are many different routes to do both of those. Um, and, and the less we worry about how people get there and the more we worry that they get there, we'll probably end up in a better place. Do you notice that any, any organizations or individuals that you work with, struggle with one specific step over another is there like is there a certain barrier that is universally harder to overcome for individuals yeah i would suggest well let me take two steps so the step four around connecting step six around faking it there's a lot of uh similarity there folks who are introverts um have a much tougher time at both those things because uh, connecting is all about being a little more extroverted and really liking uh interacting with people uh, and faking it is all about saying, I'm going to put myself out there and risk people um, you know, laughing at me, which doesn't happen that much in, in reality to folks, uh, but kind of embarrassing myself in public situations. Introverts are far less likely to want to engage in either of those two things, even though they are proven to help folks be higher performers. So there's some of that hard wiring. Again, the cool thing is you can control that. If you're an introvert who really wants to be successful, you're going to swallow hard and you're going to go out into that party and you're going to introduce yourself to people and say, Hey, I'm Mark. What's your name? How you doing? And, and that's what differentiates a high performer. They're willing to put themselves on the line. They're willing to risk a little bit of embarrassment or overcome that fear to say, I actually want to get ahead. If that's what it takes, I'm going to do it. And then you ever run into individuals who would just deny their derailers? Oh yeah. Like 99% of people. So what's the, how do you break through? Um, yeah. You, you ask if they care. <laughs> to start because half the time, I mean, if it's, if it's, well, that's just me. I've, I've been this way for 30 years and, you know, okay, well, do you want to be a different you? If you don't, then cool. You be the you that you are and have a good time. Um, but don't expect you're going to rise to the level of performance that other people do. A lot of it comes back to, do you want to be a high performer? If you do, then great. I'll give you really direct advice about it. If you don't, then why would I want to mess up your life trying to change you? If you're happy the way you are, fantastic. Just don't expect you'll get the accolades and rewards that high performers get because you're not behaving or performing like that. Interesting. That's why I tell folks, you have the right to not be a high performer. People have wonderful careers and lives without being a high performer. Um, So you don't have to be one. 
But if you want to be one, kind of recognize what goes into that and, and hearing things like, well, that's just who I am or I can't change or to your point, I tried it for five weeks and it didn't work is, is not going to get you there. What do you got, Tex? Just one more question. And I guess this is for the growing small business people out there. And what are some examples of some talent building processes? So upstarts, small micro gyms, you don't get the opportunity to bring in immediate rock stars. So you got to develop your own individuals, your own team. So what are some processes uh, that you talk about in one page talent management that can help us develop potential? Yeah, I would do three things. I think in any size business, whether you're you're three people or or 300,000, one really crisp, clear standards for what great looks like. That's the challenge in most organizations is we just aren't clear with people about, hey, there are three things that are going to make you a high performer here. If you do A, B, and C, you're in great shape. So one, start with just saying, hey, even in our micro gym, you know what? What we really want is we want people who are unbelievably skilled in coaching. We want great behaviors so that clients feel super valued and sweep up around the place. Whatever the three things are that, that matter most. Um, I can run a gym here, Mark. I'm not going to lie to you. Those, that's it. I'm, I'm looking to do something in my spare time, so I will, I will look into that. Side hustle. Uh, yeah, there, there you go. Actually, I do want to we'll have a gym conversation later. Um, but yeah, so one really clear standards, because that makes it a lot easier then to coach. So the second point would be give people really active coaching. So if you're my boss, I want to hear from you on a weekly basis, you know, am I uh, technically doing my job well? Am I interacting with the customers in a way that keeps them engaged? And is the gym clean? And if you're giving me that frequent feedback, then I'm going to get better and better and better at those things. Or you'll find out that I don't want to get better and better. And that allows you to make a choice. Um, And what was the third thing I wrote down here? Um, Oh, and then the experiences that we talked about earlier. So if we say it's being technically great and engaging the right behaviors, give me lots of different uh, opportunities to practice getting better at those things. Because the more reps I have, the faster I'm going to get better. So I'd say no matter what size business you are, if you want to drive higher performance more quickly, a few clear standards for what great is, lots of feedback against how am I doing against that standard, and lots of reps to practice getting better at those standards. It sounds super basic, I guarantee you, and most of my clients who are you know, Fortune 100 organizations, they don't do things that simple. Good stuff. Yeah, very, very in line. So... Big fan of the books. We have two, two to recommend. So we have the eight steps to high performance and then your throwback one page talent management. Get on it. Power athlete nation. What are you waiting for? And Mark is, do you have social media? Is there a way for our fans to interact? Absolutely. So um, I'm all over social media. If you're a LinkedIn person, get me on LinkedIn. If you're Twitter, I'm at the eight steps. Uh, on the website, you can download lots of cool stuff, the8steps.com. So uh, feel free to interact with me. would love to, to chat with your listeners. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate mm-hmm. you taking the time to chat with Tex and I. Another episode in the books, people. The premier podcast, podcast in strength and conditioning. Until uh, next week. Bye. See you, Mark. Thanks, guys. Take care. All right.